Hello, exceptional people. You are now listening to Change Today, a new podcast about how we can better society. I'm your creator and co-host, Miriam Antone. And I'm co-host, Molly Quatrusi. And today we will be discussing white privilege. But first, let's catch up. What is up, Molly? It's our very first podcast. We're... This is very exciting. Yeah. I'm so excited. It's been a long time coming. It sure has. Um, so just for a little bit of background... Me and Molly were roommates our freshman year of college. We were friends throughout the end of high school. And throughout our freshman year of college, we were kind of crazy when it got to, like, midnight conversations in our dorm room. Um, We're both kind of insomniacs, so we'd stay up so late just with the lights off, like, trying to fall asleep. And we would have these really bizarre conversations that we could just keep going for so long. So long. And not on, like, things that you'd expect, like school, guys, whatever. It was just, like, political things in the most random topics. Yeah, and we, it would vary, like, within a conversation. We could start talking about just our days and then we end with, like, how inaccurate a movie is. Like, things would just get really out of hand. And then one day, jo- so jokingly, we were just like, we should start a podcast. Like, we have these conversations for hours on end. And they're genuinely so fun to be a part of. Um, and then, you know, that that joke kind of ended and we didn't talk about it for months. And then... Summer 2020 happened, and things changed drastically. Um, After, you know, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement started picking up, we kind of seriously had the conversation of, like, is this something that we genuinely want to do? And, you know, the the answer was a resounding absolutely. Yes. I think it's really important that we do this because – we are obviously very passionate about it and can talk about it hours on end. And it helps. We want to bring this passion to everybody, especially everybody our age. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest reasons we decided like this is a must-do is that when you kind of look at media and even just like the funny kinds, like the Daily Show and um, things like that, you're getting all of this information, especially the political stuff, from people that are so either much older than you or just like you can't really relate to them. And we felt like, you know, this podcast is for from your peers, you know, to our peers. We're in the same age group. A lot of us have, you know, lived, have, have similar lived experiences. So it felt like a really good idea for just people our age looking to get into the movement or just looking to understand more. This would be an easy way for them, for you guys to, you know, learn and just to like be connected and be a part of everything that's going on. Right. Exactly. So for a little bit about, how about Molly? You start. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So... I was born in Florida, and I lived there for a year, and then moved to Massachusetts. Both of my parents are from Massachusetts, and they grew up in middle-class towns, and so do I. 
Now I'm here at Stonehill College and I'm studying biochemistry. How about you? Um, I was born in the Middle East. I was born in Egypt. Um, my All of my family is Egyptian. Um, we moved, uh, my family specifically moved to the U.S. in 2007. Um, we also live in the South Shore of Massachusetts now. Um, we live in a middle class town, but I think we would identify as working class. Um, I also go to Sona College. I'm a political science and sociology double major with a minor in philosophy. Um, and for me, the reason I kind of approached Molly about seriously starting this podcast is it stems from, you know, being Middle Eastern, being an immigrant in this country, being a woman, and also being a Coptic Orthodox Christian from a majority Muslim community. Um, I felt like that perspective isn't one that people are familiar with. I mean, especially, I think when we met, when I told you I was a Christian and you knew that I was Middle Eastern, you were probably like, oh. Yeah. And I, that's, uh, you know, the answer I get the most often, people are always a little confused. Um, and I think being an immigrant, being a person of color in a majority white town, even now a majority white school, definitely brings, you know, a lot of perspective to the world. Um, and... That's why I'm so excited to be doing this and to, you know, have a platform to share my thoughts and ideas from a, a perspective that people really haven't heard from before. Definitely. And with that, let's get right into it. Like Miriam said before, the topic we'll be discussing today is white privilege. So the definition of white privilege is more easily defined by what it's not rather than what it actually is. So white privilege is not the suggestion that white people have never struggled, and it is not the assumption that everything a white person has accomplished wasn't earned, but it is a built-in advantage separate from one's level of income or comfort. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard to accept that you have this notion of privilege because, you know, we work hard for where we go in life. So when we're talking about this, it's really important to keep an open mind and to, under, to know that we're not blaming you. It's not your fault that, you know, white privilege exists. But in order for us to get anywhere in this race conflict in America, we have to accept that, you know, certain people have certain privileges, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's white privilege, you know, we have to accept that it exists. So understand that we're definitely not blaming you. And this has nothing to do with who you are as a person. It's just the circumstances that appear in our society. Okay. So for some background, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, white privilege was a much more tangible, blatantly obvious advantage that was seen. And it referred to legal and systemic advantages exclusively for white people, such as citizenship, voting rights, and the right to own a home in a neighborhood of their choice. And after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, discrimination continued. So it was white privilege was viewed as more of a psychological and subconscious prejudice held by white people in their ignorance of the power that they held. And 
white privilege can be seen in everyday situations that you would never even think of. And it basically is white people's ability to move through both their personal and professional worlds with ease. And on a grander scheme, it's perpetuated through business leaders giving white people more job opportunities, which leads to greater economic opportunities, which leads to the maintained power dynamic of white people being in charge. And white privilege is also shown in legislative bodies and education, because those occupations are still disproportionately white. And the con they consciously will hire more white people to keep this cycle going. Um, and there are sadly a lot of numbers to kind of support this. Um, so as we get more in depth and more into the topic, um, you'll be hearing a lot of statistics that are hard to accept. But like we said, you know, try to keep an open mind um, and understand that this is a real problem in our society. And it's not something that is of the past. It's something that's of today. White privilege can be known as the power of the benefit of the doubt. And what is meant by this can be shown throughout these examples. So white people's skin tone will not be your reason people hesitate to trust their credit or financial responsibility. Redlining. White people are less likely to be followed, interrogated, or searched by law enforcement because they look suspicious, meaning that they don't look suspicious. If white people are accused of a crime, they are less likely to be presumed guilty, less likely to be sentenced to death, and more likely to be portrayed in a fair, nuanced manner by media outlets. A study in Georgia in the 1980s found that more than 20% of black defendants convicted of murdering white victims received the death penalty. However, only 8% of whites convicted of killing other whites received the death penalty. In addition to that, 1% of black people convicted of killing other black people received the death penalty. Um, also, once arrested, black people are more likely to remain in prison awaiting trial than whites. And in some places, they are 33% more likely to be detained while awaiting trial. New York City's former stop-and-frisk policy targeted a disproportionate number of Black and Latinx people. Um, black people were 127% more likely to get frisked and 76% more likely to be searched than whites. Yet, frisked Black people were 42% less likely to be found with a weapon than frisked white people. Black people are more likely to be arrested for drug offenses, despite using at a similar rate as white people, and that stems largely from the war on drugs. For a little bit of context, the war on drugs started in 1971, um, where the addiction rate in the U.S. was approximately 1.3%. Now, today, in the year 2020, the addiction rate is still 1.3%. All this means is that the war on drugs was largely ineffective. However, it did a lot of damage to the Black and to the Latinx community. Um, black kids are 10 times more likely to be arrested for drug crimes than white kids, even though white kids are more likely to abuse drugs. 
And it's a common belief that black people and Latinx people do more drugs. However, black people aged 18 to 25 are less likely than whites to have used marijuana in the last 12 months. In 2017, black people who were unarmed and not attacking anyone were more likely to be killed by police. Young black boys or men aged 15 to 19 are 21 times more likely to be shot and killed by police than young white boys or men. And 39% of those killed by police um, were not attacking. So it goes to show. You can, you can see the problem here. These issues have real impacts on the communities of people that are affected by racial profiling. They suffer from PTSD and it genuinely affects everyone around them because the individual who experienced this racial profiling will tell their family members and their friends about it. And then their friends and family begin to worry that the same thing would happen to them. And then their friends and family will tell their friends and family about this. And it just continues to spread. And the whole community becomes more vulnerable because now they're all worried that this incident will happen to them. And what's interesting is that trauma somebody experiencing a trauma versus somebody being told about a trauma, the effects are almost exactly the same. So it's really sad that, you know, after somebody experiences something um, and then they tell someone, that person that they told, you know, now also has that burden of, you know, not living that trauma, but hearing it. So when, you know, it's natural to tell somebody about your experiences, but when those experiences are so negative, the impacts on the community is devastating. Now, this last fact doesn't come from the United States, but Australia, who also has had a very difficult racial history. So in a study conducted in Australia, participants were asked to board a bus after saying they did not have enough money to pay the fare. This study was done on both white and black people. In over 1,500 attempts, 72% of the white people were allowed to stay on the bus, but only 36% of black people were allowed to stay on the bus after not having the money to pay the fare. And even though this wasn't true, it just goes to show that the reason that the black people weren't allowed to stay on the bus was simply just because of their race. That statistic doesn't lie. Yeah, I mean, there's only one factor that was changed and it was race. So to see the difference, you know, between um, 72% and 36%, there's an obvious disparity there. It's double. Yeah. And I'm sure that if the same experiment was conducted in the U.S., we'd get very similar results. 100%. White privilege can also be defined as the power of accumulated power. And an example of this is the ability to accumulate wealth. So in the United States, the median net worth of a white household is $141,900. For black and Latinx households, it drops to $11,000 and $13,700. This gap is huge and isn't narrowed down by going to college, working full time, or spending less and saving more. This is because the average white person who goes to college has 7.2 times more wealth 
than the median black person who went to college and 3.9 times more wealth than the median Latinx person. Um, and what's interesting about this statistic is that if we look at Massachusetts specifically, which is where me and Molly are both from, um, we see that the median income for white families in Boston is um, over 100000 but for black people, it's literally $8. And the reason that's so stunning is not only the difference of literally $8 and over 100 k it's the fact that it's happening in Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts is one of the most segregated, Boston specifically, one of the most segregated cities in the U.S., but it's also one of the most democratic states in the country. So um, it's hard to, you know, to see that we're number one in education, we're number or we're high in the list for um, medicine. And then we see this huge disparity in income for um, white and black people. Now, accumulated power and the reason that white people benefit from it has to do a lot with the history of the U.S. Obviously, um, after the U.S. became free, black people were enslaved in, in America. And that happened for a long period of time. And when you're a slave, there's no such thing as accumulating power or accumulating wealth. You know, plantations aren't passed down to slaves. You don't earn money for, you know, the labor that you do. So there's nothing for you to accumulate. And then after the Civil War, you would think that that becomes a possibility. But even then, when you come from nothing, you are viewed as lesser than. There's not really anywhere for you to go. So a lot of these newly freed slaves just worked pretty much the same jobs, just labor jobs for close to nothing to get their families, you know, just through life. So there's no accumulation of power there either. And then we see the civil rights movement. And this is really the first time where homes can be passed down. There is some kind of accumulation, but due to redlining and to these subsidized homes and um, even to justification and to some extent, the accumulation of power is so minimal that it really doesn't have any effect on these black communities. This generation is really the first one that, you know, for black people that can accumulate this kind of power and pass it on to their next generation. So maybe in the next 50 years, we'll see a change in these numbers. But as of right now, there is little to no accumulated wealth being passed down to these black families, which is in itself a privilege for white people. One person's loss is another person's gain, and we see it specifically in this example. Yes. So now we will discuss the everyday examples where white privilege exists, and you'd probably never even think about it. You'd never think of these things as being a privilege. When you go to a store to buy hair care products, it's located in an aisle in the regular spot. There's no special label for you. You don't have the labeled ethnic hair care. And a lot of times it's locked up and you have to call someone over to go help you open it and get the products you need. And the section is also significantly smaller, which is kind of funny because as a person with ethnic hair, I mean, I have 3C hair for any of you who knows what that means. You need a lot more stuff than somebody with, you know, wavy or pin straight hair. 
So the fact that our section is significantly smaller when we need more and that it's labeled ethnic, it's... What's the point of that? I know. And I mean, ethnic is kind of the kinder term that we see for a lot of places. It's kinky. It's exotic. Like things that really shouldn't be said about somebody's hair. I mean, what makes somebody's hair exotic? And what's really funny about this to me is that the difference between hair care now in like drugstores versus what it was five years ago is enormous. There are so many more companies now. Back then, you'd be lucky to find one or two products that you liked versus now, you know, at least there's a bigger section to choose from. But if I went to a drugstore five years ago looking for some mousse that was meant for curly hair, the chances that I would find something that would work was very low. Right. Whereas for me, I can literally go to any, even grocery store, any drugstore, anywhere, and pick from any brand of shampoo. There's so many brands. And if I don't like one, I can just switch brands very easily. So... Another one, back to the grocery store, is that grocery stores stock a variety of food options that reflect the cultural traditions of most white people. This is so, I mean, if we're being honest, the Middle Eastern population in the U.S. is pretty low, so you wouldn't really expect them to pack anything Middle Eastern, but it is so annoying to go to, like, a Walmart or a market basket and just be craving something so bad and not find it there. Like, I have to drive into Boston or there's a small store in Norwood to, like, find something Egyptian or any type of Middle Eastern to have. And I definitely <laughs> can't relate to that because the foods I crave are Kraft Mac and Cheese and deep dish pizza, which can easily be found in any grocery store. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of these just little things. We talked about, you know, the big things of accumulation of power and fear of being stopped and frisked and drug offenses but it just it goes past that it goes into these little 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 things that as a white person most of the time you would never even think about right like how you can be in a group of people and they're all your race for the most part or how you can go on tv even and see mostly people of your race being represented across the board everywhere Uh, media is just crazy in the u.s i don't i mean aladdin came out this year or last year was it i think last year and i was so excited and i love naomi scott but she's not even middle eastern you guys you know it's like this one movie finally where the middle east isn't represented as like a war zone or you know the middle eastern characters are not terrorists and the actress wasn't even middle eastern it was like such a punch you know just right really sad And as you said about having friend groups that are of your race, honestly, if I want a Middle Eastern experience, I either have to go to church or spend time with my family because I grew up in a white town and I go to a white school. So, I mean, if I include myself in Molly's friend group, they're all white. (laughs) And then, Yeah, it's not going to be representative of your culture. We can't Mm -hmm. relate to those things at all. And it's just something you never think about, or I would never think about, because I've just grown up around it. It's just the norm. And me and Molly the other day were trying to count how many um, black students were in our high school that graduated in our class. And what did we get to? It was like, we could think of like 
six or seven. So we assumed there was probably like 10 or 12 because we missed a few. Like, and we had a graduating class of almost 400 people. So imagine only having 12 that looked like you. Right. I mean, for me, when I moved to the US, and I think a lot of people think this is a funny story, but I was genuinely scared. When I saw like such a big group of white people at the airport, I literally started crying because I had never seen so many people that were so white. And I thought they were like sick. I thought we were in a hospital. I was like genuinely scared that I was going to catch something. And I was like a child, you know, I was seven. So I, but I was actually really scared to be in such a white place. And that kind of continued, not in the same sense. I don't think everybody's sick that's around me because they're white, but you know, when you look around and nobody looks like you, the insecurities that build up are, you know, crazy. Like for girls, especially, I would think that having not straight hair is so tough. Because as a kid, I hated having curly hair. And from I think eighth grade, when I started straightening my hair up until maybe junior year of high school, I never went to school with my hair curly. If I could help it, it was pin straight. If I had to go over it every morning, it took me almost two hours to straighten it. And I would still do it every single week because there was no way I was going to show up to school with curly hair. Because the looks that I got, or just even like the feeling of being different, I was like not okay with it. Wow, that's... (laughs) Yeah, it's something, I mean, who would think of that? Usually when you go like, if you're just wearing your hair natural and you're white and it's like wavy, it's straight. Right. That's even a privilege. Nobody looks at me funny when I wear my hair wavy yeah. naturally. But I can imagine that people coming up to you. Do people ever come up to you and try to touch it? Oh my God, all the time. It was so annoying. When I was a kid, I, for me, it was just attention and any attention was like a build to my self-esteem. And now when people are like, oh, like, can I just play with your hair? I'm like actually you can't (laughs) like why would you go up to someone and ask that question in the first place you wouldn't do it to your friend who's got pin straight hair so why are you going up to this person and asking them to touch their hair exactly and I can't even imagine if I was like if I had coils you know like I'm sure for black girls and even and black men too like that experience is completely like you probably get it way more often than I do which is definitely yeah um, so while we're kind of on this topic of white privilege, um, obviously, as you've heard throughout, I'm not white, but this kind of touches on the issue of colorism. Um, and so colorism is kind of like racism between this in the same race based off of like kind of what shade you are in that race. Um, when people see me, the biggest assumption I get is that I'm biracial or um, sometimes I get Latinx. Middle Eastern is usually not the guess that I get. So being viewed as that in society, I have certain privileges. Like if I'm being honest, I experience a lot more privileges than my, you know, black brothers and sisters. Um, I'm still, you know, I get, people are racist towards me all the time. Um, There's certain things that I get nervous about walking down the street or while I'm driving my car. But I also understand that it's never going to be as bad for me as it is for people that are a lot darker than me. And, you know, colorism is a problem that exists in every country. Even in majority black countries, we see colorism. In Indonesia, colorism is a huge problem. So colorism really is one of those problems that exists everywhere. Um, So 
I, you know, as a person of color, I want to admit here on air that I have certain privileges. I have more privileges than a person um, who's a lot darker than me. Regardless, and I'm not even black. Is the, the point I really want to drive home is that what people see and what their guesses as to who you are is gonna determine what kind of life that you have. What kind of treatment you receive. Exactly. What kind of dangers you'll have to face. Mm-hmm. Because if I were to tell somebody I'm Middle Eastern without clarifying that I'm Christian, they would assume I'm Muslim and that has a fear factor of its own. If I don't even talk to somebody and they just see me, they're going to think I'm biracial. So maybe I'm relatable. Maybe I'm, you know, somebody they don't have to be afraid of, but maybe I am, you know? So it's, it's what they see that matters. And when what they see is white, there's no fear there. Right. Because we live in majority white country where white people have always been in power and they're just the norm. Right. The power of being the norm. Being the norm is a huge power because I know the only thing I fear is late at night driving alone and that's only because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. I have no other fears besides that. I know nobody's going to come attack me because of my race. I know that when I walk down the street, nobody's going to be afraid of me. Nobody's going to shy away from me. Nobody's going to just completely disrespect me because of my race. And that's something I've been able to experience and never really had to think about until I've started viewing other people's perspectives. I feel like meeting you is a big part of that, learning about the way different people are treated, like different cultures, different races. Yeah. I never had Mm-hmm. a huge experience with that growing up because obviously Rainham is a majority white town so I just yeah never saw this never saw the way that my life was made a lot easier because of my race but now that I do know that I obviously want to help work to dismantle that because it shouldn't be easier for me just because I was luckily born into a white family than even any other race really yeah And I think what's really interesting about this conversation is that so much of it is based off of perception versus reality. You know, what we perceive is so different from what that person's reality actually is. And, you know, we always say, don't judge a book by its cover. And we don't think of it in terms of race. We think of it in terms of be kind to everybody, right? But when we look at it from a race perspective, that's what we get from law enforcement, from people of power, that's all that people of color get, especially black people, because they've been disenfranchised since this country started, you know? And, you know, Molly touched on something and it was, you know, being a woman. And we wanna also say that privilege, there's different kinds of it. We talked about white privilege is also privilege of being light-skinned. And then, you know, there's a privilege in being a man men don't have to fear a lot of the stuff that women have to fear you know and people always talk about the wage gap I understand that it's highly controversial but I do want to bring it up because white women make 78 cents for every dollar that a white man makes and then black men make 72 cents black women make 64 cents and latin women make 53 cents so even 
a disparity comes in. So we already have a disparity as being a woman. Add to that being a woman of color, you know, I have so much appreciation for black women because I think they are the most disenfranchised group in America. I mean, it's hard to deny that. Being a woman has its complications. Being a woman of color, I mean, look at this. 53 cents for Latin women, 64 cents for black women. I mean, the disparity just between women is huge, let alone, you know, for race. It really is just a very um, obvious issue. It's very clear that white privilege does exist and yeah. even privilege between races does exist. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully you stuck with us through this tough convo. Um, and, you know, like we said earlier, we really want to reiterate that your privilege isn't your fault. It's just the society that you are born into naturally creates it. But it becomes your fault when you don't accept it. When you deny that it's there, it becomes, you know, a, a, a racist problem, you know, um, because bias, bias is fixable. Racism, hate. That's not that, fixable. That's down to that's your core. Yeah. And, you know, I admitted that as a person of color who is on the, the lighter side, I have privilege. And I, as a white person, can admit that I have privilege. It's, it's definitely hard. And it's nobody's trying to take away your accomplishments from you. I'm sure that you worked hard, especially if you're, you know, from a lower economic yeah. you know, background. Definitely. We're not trying to take any of that away because we obviously know anybody can struggle. Mm -hmm. Anybody can have challenges in this life. But that struggle wasn't also hindered by being a different race besides white. That's the point we're trying to make here. And it's even just as simple as, you know, sending in a job application. And I use this example all the time, and Molly has heard me say it a million times. But if I put on my application that my name is John, and I have the same economic background as somebody who's named Jamal, the person is going to see that my name is John. And just based off of that, I'm already more likely to get the job. So without even like, without even seeing you or knowing anything about you, being on the same level as somebody else, but a person of color, you, that's the kind of advantage we're talking about. Right. But again, everybody can struggle. Nobody's trying to get, take away to struggle. Nobody's saying you didn't have to work for what you have, but you just weren't hindered, like Molly said, by your race. So here are some sources we used while putting this episode together. What is White Privilege Really by Corey Collins? White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. Um, and also White Privilege and Systemic Racism. In, and if you're a little too busy to check out, you know, these kind of longer in-depth studies, you can honestly just go on YouTube and look up White Privilege and the amount of things that, you know, come up. Um, you'll learn a lot. And also, watching just movies and TV, you can learn a lot from that too. Um, if you have Netflix, um, feel free to check out Dear White People. It can be a little aggressive at times, but it definitely gets the message through and you get to see a different perspective, especially if you're white. Um, so that's a really great show that you can have a good time watching and, you know, definitely learn something from. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope you'll join us next week. Um, after this uh, kind of hard subject, we just hope that you can still have a great day. Um, you know, just understand that you are an awesome person. You are trying your hardest. You are loved. You are appreciated. And don't forget, forget that, that there is always, always hope, hope for change, change today. today.